The second most popular question we received, worded in dozens and dozens of different ways, was, here's a sampling, why am I here? Why did God create mankind? What is our role on earth and how do we find out what it is specifically? What is the purpose of life? Where did I come from? What is my purpose? What is the purpose of this life? What was God's intent in creating earth and humans? How can you experience God in everyday life? And we summarized these questions and rolled them all up into one. What is the meaning of my life? What is the meaning of my life? Mankind is unique in all of creation in asking questions like this. My little dog does not wonder what the meaning of her life is. She's quite happy to eat in the morning and at night, sleep all day, and steal toothpaste from our bathroom and take it outside. And all the while she's not wondering, all the while she's not wondering, what is my purpose? Am I fulfilling it? Why am I here? Near as I can tell, the same is true for the birds that roost in the tree by my bedroom window. They're content to sing loudly every morning and poop on my grill. I think that's what they think their purpose is. They're not wondering, what is the meaning of my life? But people ask that question. As long as people have walked this earth and looked up at the starry sky, they've wondered, what is my purpose? What is the meaning of my life? Many different people answer this question in different ways. Richard Dawkins, the famous modern-day atheist who wrote The God Delusion, says, the universe, the universe we live in, we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, the universe is governed by arbitrary, random powers with no deeper meaning. Alex Rosenberg says the same thing even more directly. He says, what is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of your life? Ditto. So in other, in other words, your life has no meaning, so stop asking the question. Why? Because this world sprung into existence randomly and with no cause or purpose. So Stanley Kubrick of the 2001 Space Odyssey fame said, the very meaninglessness of life forces mankind to create his own meaning. So, people, men and women, boys and girls, have decided to center their lives on all kinds of things. What they look like, how much money they make, who their family is, where they live, how they live, how they speak, how they don't speak, what they drive, what kind of house they have. This kind of philosophy says that we're free to do what we want with our lives and whatever strikes our fancy. Is that the answer to the meaning of life? According to the scriptures, no, it's not. What is then the purpose of the meaning? What's the meaning of your life? And the reason I can speak broadly is because this book applies to every person who has ever been born and applies directly to all of us. What is the purpose of your life? It's very simply this, to bring God glory. Now, glory is a very churchy kind of word, but hang with me. 
We're going to define it. We're going to ask ourselves what it means. When I grew up, glory was what you said at church when you didn't know what else to say. You would just say, glory. You didn't know what to say. Glory. You didn't know how to define it, but glory. And so that's not how we're going to use it today. We're going to see that you and I were created by God for God, and this is the right order. Otherwise, uh, if we don't recognize that order and seek to bring glory to Him, our lives will be broken. So we're going to focus on sort of a summary of all the Bible has to say, but we're going to look first at Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. And look, and, and this idea we find in verse 36. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or hard to understand are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him, everything comes from God. Through him, everything comes through God. And to him are all things. All is meant to go back to God. Therefore, we as mankind, men and women, boys and girls, are called to live a life that brings glory to God. And for him, to him be the glory. Amen. So we're going to ask three questions as we sort to try to understand what is the meaning of my life. First, why should God have a purpose for anyone? That's a, good, that's a fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves here at the beginning. Why does God have the right to have a purpose for anyone? I don't have the right of my own authority to tell you what your purpose in this life is. I can't come up to you and say, you know what? Your purpose in this life is to do X, Y, and Z. I can't do that to you, and you can't do that to me. So why can God do that to us? We've got to ask that question. Why can God determine our purpose? Why can God define who we are? Why? Because he owns us. He is the owner of mankind. Now, ownership, now you're not used to being thought of as being owned, but we all are. Ownership is usually conferred in one of two different ways. One, by purchase, or two, by creation. Purchase or creation. For example, I purchased my 2005 Chevy Tahoe, so I have the right to determine its purpose. Where it goes, how fast it drives, the fact that it will never go to Ikea. It, I get to determine that. I get to determine when it gets washed. I get to determine all of those things. Why? Because I own the Tahoe. I get to determine its purpose. The other way we see creation, the other, the other way we see ownership exercised is by means of creation. If I go to Home Depot and purchase the supplies to build a rocking chair, then I, and I build said rocking chair, I own the chair. I decide where it goes. I decide what color it is. I decide whether it's inside or outside. I decide whether I keep it, how long I keep it, and when it goes in the trash. Why? Because I owned it and I created it. God then owned mankind by means of creation. This is one of the clearest statements in the Bible. There's a lot of controversy of how Christians interpret Genesis, but one thing is clear, and everyone who is a Christian recognizes this. God created mankind. We read this in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image 
after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Because God created all of mankind, therefore, God has the right to determine our purpose. That's why he can tell us what we're called to do. I can't. I didn't create you. You can't tell me you didn't create me. But he created us, therefore, he is the one who determines mankind's purpose. That's why he can do this. Now, what is that purpose? We talked about glorifying God. That purpose is then, to, to glorify God means to live for God. One of the very famous answers to the question was one that was, was put together in the 1640s by a group of pastors in, a, in um, England in a place called Westminster. And they said, we're going to summarize the teaching of the Bible in some question and answer format. And they asked, the very first question is, why is man, what does man exist? And they said to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So your purpose, I don't know who you are, everybody in this room, I don't know everybody who's watching, but I do know your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God. Your purpose is to make much of Him. Your purpose is to live with reference to God. Now I want you to see these, these pastors rightly made a connection between glorifying God and experiencing joy. In other words, if you find your purpose in God, you will experience joy in this life. You will be happy. You will be happy. And the glory of God is a way of speaking of his greatness. Now, glory, we've got to understand, if we're going to glorify God, we need to understand what glory is. Glory is a way in which the Bible speaks of his greatness. It's a way of saying that this God cannot be ignored, categorized, or marginalized. He can't be grasped and fully understand. But at the same time, glory is one of those words that's very hard to define. But we read when men and women come in contact with his glory, we see then what glory is. It's one of those things that you might not be able to define perfectly, but you know it when you see it. You know it when you experience it. We see men and women interacting with God and understand what glory is instead of having a neat and tidy explanation. I'm going to give you three examples. First is the example of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet in Israel, and he records this. In the, king, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So he's transported, as it were, into the throne room with God. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, those are angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, which is a sign in the Old Testament and the whole Bible of his presence. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, Isaiah saw God's glory because he was in God's presence. And he doesn't sit there and say, okay, now I can define glory. He says, I'm undone. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't belong here. Ezekiel's the same kind of thing. Ezekiel, instead of going to the throne room, the throne room comes to him. Now, I want you to see as I read these three verses how many times we, we hear the word like, likeness, and appearance. Ezekiel's trying to describe what glory is, and he's not doing a good job. We'll, I'll show you here. Verse 26. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was a likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with human appearance. And upward from what had been the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. See, Ezekiel speaks saying like, 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 like a valley girl because he doesn't know how to put words to it directly, right? He can't exactly explain it, but he can explain his experience. The same is true with John. John, who was Jesus' best friend on earth, ran into him after he was resurrected, and we read this, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So when people come in contact with the glory of God, they have these physical responses. They, they, they recognize they're not worthy to be there. They shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be here. But they also recognize he can't be ignored. And so, like Isaiah, they say, oh my goodness, I don't belong here. Or like John, he falls on his face. Or Ezekiel, he falls on his face. Glory, then, is a way of describing God's greatness. It's a way of describing his otherworldliness. It's something that only he has. So then, what does it mean to glorify God? This means that it's, it's, it's our purpose as Christians is to live a life centered on and defined by him. He is the one who defines who we are who defines our purpose. We're called to be oriented toward God and oriented for his, to, to make his name great and to show his greatness in everything we do. To live for him. That's our purpose. Now, how is this enjoyable? Now, you might wonder that. Now, you might have grown up in a place where the idea of religion is stuffy, there's smells, there's bells, there's all kinds of strange things that you don't really know how to understand. And it's anything but enjoyable and fun. But that's not the reality of people who live lives uh, reflecting the glory of God. What they do is they recognize who they are, and then they're able then to enjoy the gifts God gives them. And so 
we can recognize, we can bring glory to God when we eat good food. Why? Because God gave us taste buds to enjoy food. We can bring glory to God. We can work hard knowing that all we do for our employer is ultimately for God. We can rest knowing that we need rest. We're created. We're not, we're not like machines who can just go on without any kind of, you know, downtime. We can enjoy leisure as a gift and a means to recharge our batteries. We can love our family knowing that God has given each family member to us so that we might be able to enjoy them. We can serve friends and be a steady support for them in hard times, knowing that that's part of the purpose we're called to do is bring glory to God by serving other people. We have been given gifts by God, and God has called us to steward them in a way that amplifies His greatness in our life. That's the idea. So when we follow the Lord, we recognize He's the one then that reorients our desires. If then, if we live for ourselves, our whole life will be out of order and it won't make sense. Now, we still haven't really answered the question, how is this enjoyable? This message is all over the Bible, but here's one spot, which I'll just highlight here for a moment. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, when you live to amplify or in to amplify his greatness, you are living in the way you're designed and created to live. Birds were created to fly. Fish were created to swim. Boats are created to float and travel on water. Microwaves are created to heat up food. Swimming pools are created to swim in. We are created to enjoy God and bring him glory. Birds do what they're called to do because that's their, what they're created to do. You and I were created to bring him glory and thereby enjoy him and experience happiness. That's our purpose. That's what mankind was created for. That's the reason. So we've seen God has the right to declare and define people's purposes because God is creator. We've seen that our purpose then is to bring glory to God. And what does it look like to glorify God in this life? First, it, it calls for radical change. It's the kind of change that none of us can bring upon ourselves. It's something that God must do. We cannot do this all by ourselves. It's not as if what we have is just, you know, we're a little bit sick or that, we, that salvation is a matter of, of getting a nudge from God so that we can sort of get over the hump. That's not the case. The Bible tells us that mankind cannot, cannot naturally bring glory to God because he and she, he is spiritually dead. Every person ever born with the first birth is spiritually dead. Though you can breathe, though you can eat, though you can cry, though you can experience things in this life. You are spiritually dead. That's why Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, your first birth when you entered the world was a birth into spiritual death, and you need, I need, all of us need something more. You need the new birth. And so what qualifies someone to experience this new birth? 
It's just the awareness of need and a willingness to receive help. See, this is where we as Christians, you're not a Christian, you need to understand this about us, we did not give ourselves new life. We do not experience salvation primarily because one day we decided, you know, I'm going to do better, and so therefore I'll be saved. No, Jesus is the one who saves all. And he's the only one who comes and can bring salvation to anyone. Augustine, the church father, said that the essence of sin is mankind turned in on himself. It's a picture of like, a, like a, an ostrich with his head stuck in the ground. Mankind turned in on himself. So mankind, the essence of sin is when mankind can't recognize who God is or his creation or the people around him because he's so consumed with himself. His own needs, his own wants, his own preferences, all of those things. And all of us naturally are that way. And apart from the new birth, that is who we are. And so we don't need to go on a journey to a far country of self-discovery to be saved. We don't need to sit around and do nothing. We just need to ask Jesus for help. We don't need to say, hey, I need to start making better choices. Rather, what we say then is, Jesus, help me. I'm a sinner who's spiritually dead, and I need to experience the new birth. Jesus turns no one away who comes to him with an open heart, willing to receive help. Willing, that's the key, willing to receive help. His ear is always turned toward those who call upon him and mean it. We can say as Christians, those of us that are Christians, are, we're twice owned. We're owned once by means of creation because he created all of mankind. We're also owned by means of purchase. Jesus purchased all Christians by means of his death and resurrection. And the reason that we can go to him and know that he will give us the new birth is because he has paid the substitutionary price for the sins of all who come to him. He's paid that price, and anyone who wants to experience this new life and then begin to experience what they were created to do and be need to come come to him, aware of their need, asking for help. So if that's you, I would beg for you to ask help. And maybe you have questions about what that help looks like. We have time for Q&A here in just a moment. If you know a Christian, talk to them. Whether you're here or not, if you don't know anybody, I can introduce you to some people. If you're online and you're wondering, how can I get connected to, if you're out of this state, we can connect you to other faithful churches. If you're here, you're welcome to join us at any time. But our call is to glorify God. That's why we're here. That's what our lives are meant to be about. I recently read an account by someone who was aware that she was turned in on herself and she didn't know what to do. And her pastor, a man who became her pastor, recounts the story. She would say over and over, God, help me find you. God, help me find you. But had gotten nowhere. A Christian friend suggested to her that she might change her prayer to, God, come and find me. After all, you are the good shepherd who goes looking for lost sheep. She concluded when she was recounting this story to me by saying, the only reason I can tell you this story today is that he did. He came and found her. Maybe that's you. 
call out. You don't have to use special words, have some kind of special ritual. All you need to do is be aware of your need and be willing, be willing to be able to have the Lord come and give you the new birth. Jesus will do that. So, what is the meaning of my life? It's to, it's to glorify God and live for Him and His purposes and amplify His greatness in everybody to everyone in the world that we live in. If you're not a Christian, if you're not following Jesus, you won't be able to live your purpose apart from Him. Only He can redeem you. Only He can give you what you need. And so I would beg of you, go to Him. Ask for help. If you're aware of your need, He will not turn you away. So now, if you have questions, you're more than welcome to text those questions in. Um, or you can come. We'll have, actually we have a microphone right there with Zach Boomsma. He'll, he's he's going to be my, he's going to be our official mouthpiece this morning. Um, or this afternoon by 17 seconds. And um, begin to uh, ask those questions. But if you have one, he'll give you the microphone you can ask. Do we have any questions, Zach? Go. How, why, how might we go about having a conversation about God's purpose for someone's life when they seem to be content in their life for their purpose apart from God, seeing their lifestyle and purpose as good enough? That's a good question. Um, one reality is, is that you can't make someone feel their need. Um, it's not very helpful to go to somebody and say, I've, I know you look happy, but I know you're miserable and you're dying inside. Um, uh, that's, oh man, I'm so sorry. You know, that's self-righteousness. That's, that's, that's not going to help anybody. But um, every person on the planet faces suffering in one way, shape, or form. And so what suffering does is it amplifies our needs in ways that we're not aware of in the rest of life. And so what I would say to that person is stick close. Stick close to your unbelieving friend who thinks everything they have is making them happy and they're good. Stay close because they're either, they're, maybe they get everything they ever wanted and they realize it doesn't satisfy. Or maybe they crash and burn and they say, I need help. But whatever the case, stay close because God will give you an opportunity to be able to explain that to them. Now, it's completely foolish and wrong for us as Christians, if you're a Christian here, to go about telling people, you know what, uh, you're happy. I think your happiness is just a facade and you're a fake. That's, don't do that. Let them come to you and say, man, I just feel empty inside or whatever. And so that's where we need to be as Christians, if you're a Christian, friends with unbelievers so that they, we have a relationship with them so that they will come and ask us. Um, they will come and ask us, what, what do I do? So, good question. Do we have another one, Zach? No. We got one behind you. Why don't you grab the microphone, Pat? Yeah, I got a question about, uh, you said this, when you started out about how God determines our purpose. Correct. Because God created us. It's His yep. right to determine our purpose. And you also said, 
Romans says, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. Correct. So as Christian, my heart leaps with that, right? And yeah, yeah, we're excited about that, right? But uh, when I speak to someone who doesn't know the Lord, uh, and they've expressed this, and I've expressed, well, you know, our purpose is to glorify God, they come back and say, well, what about all these bad people yeah. that you see in the world, like, you know, Stalin and Hitler and all the terrible things that they've done on mankind? How is it that they are called... You know, from him, through him, and to him are all things, or their purpose is somehow hooked to that. Yeah. That is, obviously, i just like to know how you would answer someone. Who no, that's right. If, and that's, that kind of dovetails with last week, how, the, the, the problem of evil. If someone says, <clears throat> if someone says, ask me the question about Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or whatever, I'll say, they will glorify God by his judgment. Um. They will glorify God because you know what? God will not allow people like that to get away with anything. And so you can either choose to glorify God in this life by following him or, like those people, glorify God in his judgment and righteous anger against what's wrong. See, here's one of the things about Christianity that we have. If you, for our worldview that no other, no other religion has, we know that all injustice will one day be made right. So Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin will answer for every single soul that they killed and consigned to death. Every single one. Jesus won't let them get away with anything. And we will stand on and say, they're glorifying God right now in judgment. And so everyone will glorify God. Either by grace, by, by experiencing his grace, salvation, or his judgment. So, that's how I'd answer that. And then I'd say to that person, what about you? You know, and then we'd switch it to them and stuff. So, anyway. Zach? Ephesians 2.5 says, we are dead in our sin, as you pointed out. You mm -hmm. also stated that those who are willing will pray for salvation. Correct. Question. Who is willing? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Those are well. That's this person is asking a very good question, um, and I would step back and say, listen, if someone is willing to ask for help, that means that the Holy Spirit is active in their life in a way in which they're recognizing they need help. So, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit acts in the world is by coming to people who don't know that they need God and showing them that they need God. And so what that means then is if you are at that spot to where you're aware of your need, that means the Holy Spirit is active. That means he's working. Now I can tell you you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but if you're aware I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, guess what? That means the Holy Spirit's active and you should respond. And so that doesn't mean that you are responding somehow separate from the Spirit. The Spirit is active in that way. So that's how I'd answer that question. Um, so this is the question of like, is if God's sovereign, do our choices matter? Sovereign means that he controls all things. Um, and there can be this deterministic thinking in Christianity that says, it doesn't matter what we do because God's sovereign. Actually, that's not the case. What we see is a good, sovereign God controlling all things for our good and the reality that our choices matter. We should pray. 
We should obey. We should live in a way that brings him glory. Why? Because that's our responsibility. And so how do these things work out together? These things work out together in a way that we can't readily understand or philosophically explain, but we know them to both be true. So are sinners dead in their sins? Yes. Do they need to respond? Yes. And I can see in the Bible, I can see if they respond, I can see that the Spirit is working in them so that they're aware of their need. And that's why I can say, if you're aware of your need, respond. But I won't say, if you're here, listen, I won't say, if the Holy Spirit moves on you, then respond. Because then there's this passivity that pushes people back and they're not going to respond and they're like, I don't know, how can you know if the Holy Spirit's moving? You know, I didn't hear any music and there's no candles lit and I don't hear anything weird going on. But rather, what I want them to do is recognize if they're aware of their need, then they should respond now. And I know, biblically, and we as Christians know, that's the spirit working in their life. Another one? Yep. So if we all have the same purpose to glorify God, how do we figure out how that looks in our individual lives? Right. That's... Somebody asked the question last time as well. Purpose and calling, I think, are two different things. We're all called. We're all, our purpose is to glorify God, and all of us are going to be called to do that in a different way. Some of us, well, all of us are called to be about something. So if you're a mom at home changing diapers of three children under five, you're glorifying God as you do that work. If you are an engineer working at Intel or wherever, and you work to... God's glory, you work hard for his glory, um, you are glorifying God doing his work. And so all of us are called to glorify God, but we are all called to do, where our purpose is to glorify God, but we're all going to be doing it in different ways. Some of you who are kids, still in school, you glorify God by working hard at school and doing your best. If you're retired and your working days are past, that doesn't mean you, you, you glorify God by the way you interact with other people in your retirement, the way you serve and, and help and, and um, you know, move toward other people. Um, all of us are called in different ways. We're all called to ministry. Christians are all called to ministry. Only some of us are called to full-time vocational ministry. And so how does that, yeah, how, does, how do people figure out what it is? The best way to figure this out is not by gift tests online, but by being involved in a community of people who love you and are for you, and you get to be involved and serve together, and people can come along and say, you know what, you're gifted in X, Y, and Z. You should think about this. Or you think, man, the Lord's putting something on my heart. I'm wondering about this. Can we pray about this and talk about this and work together as we think about whether we should do whatever it is in life? A lot of times what people do who know a little bit about church or have been for a while is they'll say, well, the Lord's called me to do, boom. And then... The reality is they just did a big Jesus juke because they know that no one's going to say, the Lord didn't call you to that. Um, but that's a way of saying, here's what the Lord's calling me to do, and, and I don't want anybody to question me. Which, and maybe he is, but the best way to figure that out is in community in a local church where you have fellowship with other people. And just to state the obvious, the Lord never calls anybody to sin. That just isn't how it goes. I've had people sit across the table from me and say, the Lord's calling me to do whatever. And it's sinful. It's wrong. Very clearly wrong and sinful. And I say, no, it's not the Lord. That's somebody else. Another one? 
Yeah, kind of on the, on the heels of that. This is, okay. As Christians, how do we know that we're glorifying God and not just doing acts and self-righteousness? Good question. First, by being in community. <laughs> Second, well, so this is, this is the question of what fruit looks like, really. Um, every genuine believer is going to exhibit fruit in keeping with their repentance, meaning their life is going to look different over time. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be flawless. It's going to be authentic, and it's going to be faithful. And so over time, you can tell, you can tell that you're glorifying God if you're growing in godliness, meaning if you obey more and more, if you orient your life around the Lord more and more. And this takes time. It takes work. It takes, it, it, it's, it's a lifelong experience. Um, that is just not, it's not something that, you know, we're Americans, we want something like this. Um, the Lord is much more concerned with, with our obedience than with our gifting. And so those who are faithful in their obedience, they ought to be the ones who have confidence um, that they're glorifying God. I talked to someone recently who is, who is living in unrepentance and living with someone not their spouse, who said, I've never been closer to the Lord. And I would say, you are far from God and you're deluded um, because you are living in unrepentant sin, disobedient, so you are not glorifying God. And so sometimes that's what it takes in the community. We need someone to say to us, no, that's wrong. Or other times, some of us are easily discouraged, right? Some of us are easily discouraged and we think, man, we're just a waste of space, and there's, phew, God's probably just disappointed with me, and he looks down at me, and he shakes his head all the time, and he looks away. No, we need, those kind of people need to be encouraged. Go, no, listen, the Lord values you. He's working in your life. Just because you're not perfect in everything that you will be doesn't mean that you're not glorifying God. So I think that's where community is so very important so that we can encourage one another and encourage one another with the Bible, encourage one another with, with um, you know, all kinds of, of thoughts and prayers and even just service, you know. That's why we, you know, you read the second half of Paul's epistles and you find all the ways in which community looks like. We weep with those with we, who weep. We, we rejoice with those who, have, who rejoice and have something good go. And so, like, that's part of the community that we're trying to, trying to build them, so... So just to follow up then, yes. so then who decides if that's fruit or not, right? Who decides? Yeah. Ultimately, God decides if that's fruit. Um, but and if so, I say, if I say, oh, I'm seeing fruit in my life, but you say, nah, I don't think that's, we're at this impasse here. What do you do then? Well, it depends on the situation. Um, but what you do then, I think, is broaden the circle and say, well, maybe I'm wrong. Go talk to someone else. Um, because, you know, nobody has the authority to determine in anyone's life what, fruit, what is fruitfulness or what is fruit. Um, but, you know, if it's, if it's true, then they can go and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm conducting myself. Is this right? Is this glorifying to God or is it wrong? And so that, that's the way I'd answer that probably. Any other questions? Or is everybody wanting to get to football? 
I think Leslie has a question. You know what? Yes. Yeah, Leslie, stay. Uh, so I have a lot of friends who don't believe in God yeah. and don't know God. So if I say to them my purpose in life is to honor God or to live for him, they're just going to say, well, that's nice for you. I, right. I don't believe in God. Yeah. So do you have any suggestions or comments on that? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question. And so I think on one extreme is I can, you know, we don't want to say to them, hey, I know you're miserable. You know, you've got no hope and no purpose. That, that's self-righteousness. Um, I, I think with people who, who don't believe in God, I would want to ask them questions about why they're doing what they're doing to sort of get underneath and help them to understand their functional worldview. If they're friends, you know, um, like you've worked at such and such place for so long, why does that matter? Um, you've done X, Y, and Z. Why is, like, what about the suffering you experience? Why does that matter? So for me, you can speak of it and say, listen, I've worked for years doing, you know, well, in your case, um, serving for decades on uh, campuses sharing the gospel um, of Jesus Christ. But whatever work you would have done, you did that to the Lord and you know that he's pleased. And so you can just say, hey, that's how it functions for me. Is that the way it functions for you? I mean, I think there's ways to ask questions if they're interested in talking so that we don't come off as self-righteous and holier than thou, because that's not what we're trying to do. Um, but just to sort of help them get underneath uh, their worldview, even just to recognize if they don't believe in God, what is their standard of morality? There is no standard if there is no standard giver, right? And so I don't think most people think that way. They just think, um, I want to get to the weekend, you know, let's go get a $5 hot and ready at Little Caesars or whatever, um, and let's watch this movie, this is streaming, that, whatever, and they're not thinking about why they're doing what they're doing, so. But those are quest hard questions to answer in general. I mean, that's, it, I'd be happy to talk in specifics if you want. Um, do you want to pass the microphone back? Um, I think Eric, behind you, Zach, right behind you. Um, we are living in a world that's becoming increasingly oppositional to God. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> It's um, obvious. It used to be more subtle, but now it's obvious. It's obvious. And, yeah. and as individuals that uh, we come in contact with, we're often confronted not just with unbelief, but with hatred right. and with anger. Right. And, and they're going to, and danger, like you're dangerous for believing that way. Right. How do we proceed in that environment? Yeah. I mean, I think that question Eric asks is one of the questions that we're going to have to grapple with as Christians in this world. How do we proceed? Um, and so I think the way that I think about something like that is um, I would want to... So depending on who they are, obviously, if I have a relationship with them... I would want to make sure they understand that I would want them to feel my love and affection before anything else. Um, I would want them that to be clear. If they're friends, then, then we're going to be able to be, we're going to be able to have that kind of relationship where they know, oh, th he loves me, he's for me, he's, I'm with him and we're together. And so I can ask this kind of question. Now, the person who's anonymous just throwing things at us, 
or speaking these kinds of vitriolic statements to us. I think in that case, there are times in which we need to respond and there are times in which we don't. And I think that takes wisdom. Um, now, when it comes, let's just speak of in terms of relationships. When, there are, when we have relationships with people who think that Christianity is dangerous or it's narrow-minded or, you know, they, they start to get angry, I think what we do is respond the way Jesus did. I mean, he responded with mercy and he responded with grace. And so I recognize that my opportunity with someone who's angry at me because I in some way represent God, I have the opportunity to show love to them in a way that they're not going to see anywhere else. When you, when in the world we live in, when someone lashes out in anger, they expect an answer like that in kind. And so if there is any way in which I can, and I think there is, to respond graciously and lovingly and kindly and even just gently, even with the tone of voice or what I say, I think that's what we do. Um, because there will be, I mean, there will be a time for us to, as Christians, to, we're going to have to all grapple with this. We're going to have to all think, okay, what's my conviction here? How do I respond here? But I think what we want our testimony to be is this unwavering support and commitment to truth lived out in a gracious way. Um, unwavering um, principles that are, that are, are clothed in gentleness, kindness, and meekness. Um, it's, Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth. That's not how it works here right now. But it will one day be that way. And so, as Christians, I think we're called to be meek, which doesn't mean weak. It means that we stand on what we believe and know that we can be gracious and kind knowing that the Lord is going to work all things out for good. So, that's kind of a general answer. Um, but I think what you bring up is something we should all be aware of because that's the world we live in. And I think... Unless the Lord brings revival, it's going to be that way for a while. So, good question. One more? Go for it. Is it possible to glorify God and not necessarily be happy doing what I'm doing now? Sure. <laughs> We're not even talking about the fight for joy. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yes, it is possible to glorify God, but God wants us to be... So this is, this is one of the things as Christians that I think we have the freedom to do is... is fight for joy. Um, as Christians, we're not just going to roll out of bed, some of us. Some of us are because we're, you know, some of us are like Tigger, you know. Boom, everything is great. Just by disposition. If that's you, praise God. And then some of us are like Eeyore, right? And, you know, everything's dark and foreboding and I'm probably going to die tomorrow. Um, that's me, right? And so um, I have to fight for I have to fight for that kind of joy. And so what I want to do is I can glorify God by being obedient. I can glorify God by doing the right things. But I want to glorify God by being obedient and being joyful. And so for me, that takes extra work. What I have to do is I have to wake up every morning and remind myself that, okay, God does not treat me like my sins deserve. I have been the recipient of untold grace. I will one day be with him forever, and I won't feel sadness at all. That will be a great day. So, Lord, help me have joy. 
And so all the worries and the concerns and the fears that I have, I try to throw off, throw off, throw off. I try to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through parents' supplications, let my request be known to God. So when I feel that anxiety and it blocks my joy, I think, okay, what am I anxious about? Oh, here's the nine things I'm anxious about, and throw them away. But then they come back, and I throw them away again, and then they come back, and they throw them away again. That's how I fight for joy. And so can we glorify God when, we don't, when we're not happy or joyful? Yes. But I think God's ideal is for us to glorify Him in our obedience joyfully. And that's one of the things you can pray for me, that I would be able to be joyful and fight for joy. And I'll just leave it there. So is that it, Zach? All right. Next week, next week, we, we go PG-13. We ask God, why do you care so much about my sexuality? So it will be PG-13. Uh, if you have your children in here, they're more than welcome, but it's going to be, well, you'll see. Um, <laughs> until then, thank you so much for coming. Until then, have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. You are dismissed.